Hello, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode 27 being recorded on Wednesday, May 12, 2021. I hope you are doing well. I am doing pretty well. A lot to discuss this week. Last week, we broke the record for uh, longest episode that we've ever recorded at uh, closing in on about an hour and a half. I have a feeling we might approach that number this week. So just uh, just strap in, buckle in, and, and enjoy. Um, just a uh, you know, quick, quick update. Of course, we talk about the pandemic on this program. Uh, I mentioned last week that I was getting my vaccine shortly after I recorded it. I did. I am fine. And I seriously, I know some people are, you know, some people don't want to be talked down to, you know, even with the, the, even with the vaccine, but please, if you, if you can take it, um, please do, uh, there, look, there are side effects, of course, and it's, I think it's pretty natural actually for people to, I was a little under the weather, um, for the next day, but just, just, you're going to have to prepare for that, accept that, drink a lot of water before you go in there. Uh, I, you know, I, I understand that if, if you have concerns, but please, it's the best thing for not only for you, but it's the best thing for everyone if you uh, take it. And obviously, even after you get the vaccine, this thing is far from over because, um, I mean, we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. It's been said a number of times, but it's true. But, uh, you know, I saw, I mean, there's still varying strains. I know we still have to talk about booster shots and things like that. And I, I saw a piece on 60 Minutes about all these people, these poor people suffering in the hospitals from in India from COVID. I think it's from a, and I believe it's from a different strain. So, you know, uh, and then, you know, you contrast that with later in the evening, I'm watching, I watched some of the Angels Astros game, which was Sunday Night Baseball this past week. And look, even if these people are fully vaccinated, you look behind, and they're spread out throughout most of the ballpark, but behind home plate at Minute Maid Park in Houston, they are crammed together. Crammed together. There is not an empty seat within that camera angle from center field, and there was maybe one, maybe two people with masks. So I and you know it's it's incredibly dangerous. So please, please continue to be careful. Um, even I know I'm not technically fully vaccinated until two weeks out from the second shot. So uh, please just you know be be careful, be safe um, as we try try to move ahead with this. But uh, getting into this, so much, so much to discuss this week. You know, I figured, I pretty much figured once I did my whole thing about my whole spiel about the Rangers and the Capitals and Tom Wilson last week that I'd probably be done. But this only got more interesting, um, and I am uh, it, it's it's a heck of a discussion. It's, it's very thorough. There are also some. Big head coaching decisions in the NHL, some firings. David Quinn of the Rangers, one of them. John Tortorella of Columbus actually found out this morning that David Quinn would be fired. That came in on Wednesday, the day I record this. John Tortorella fired from the, by the Blue, or mutually agrees to depart, to part ways with the Blue Jackets. Same goes for Rick Tockett and the Arizona Coyotes. We'll talk about the some of the cooler things. We're going to talk about. Uh, T.J. Oshie, the one really nice thing that came out of that whole Rangers-Capitals um, madness, the, the one nice thing in the midst of all of that. Talk about the Lightning, Tampa Bay Lightning playing an all-black line, which could be the first in NHL history. From what I've seen, they don't really know for sure. It's possible, but they don't know for sure if it is. Uh, and It has been done in hockey. We don't know if it's been done in the NHL, but something that's really cool. 
And kind of a side note from that, a great precursor to what should be an outstanding Lightning Panthers playoff series. And we'll move on to baseball. We'll talk about a couple of no-hitters. John Means of the Baltimore Orioles throwing a no-hitter. Wade Miley of the Reds, no-hitting the Cleveland Indians. Big discussion. Albert Pujols released by the Angels after really nine and a quarter seasons. We'll talk about the Mets and the Rat and the Rat Coon, um, and uh, also uh, Carlos Carrasco being put on the 60-day IL. Uh, we'll talk about the A's. A's exploring the possibility of relocation with the blessing of the MLB. We'll discuss. I mean, so, something I never thought I'd discuss in the same sentence: horse racing and PEDs. So we're, we're going to talk about that whole thing with Bob Baffert and Medina Spirit. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit, just a little bit of football. This is actually kind of a baseball discussion, really, too. But we'll talk a little bit of football. We'll talk about Tim Tebow signing with the Jacksonville Jaguars. But first, uh, we'll get things going with this whole fiasco with the Rangers, the Capitals, the NHL, Tom Wilson. Uh, first off, well, as I mentioned last week, of course, that uh, Tom Wilson committed what probably should have been a suspendable act. Uh, uh, he was fined $5,000 for punching Pavel Buchnevich's head into the ice, Buchnevich face first into the ice, uh, was not punished for pretty much ragdolling Artemi Panarin and dropping him by. Fortunately, Panarin, with his helmet off, uh, had his shoulder hit the ice first, as opposed to his head, thank goodness, but his season ended for the last three games. So then on top of that, the Rangers send a strongly worded statement out to the NHL. They uh, And then after that, they fire President John Davidson and, D- and uh, General Manager Jeff Gorton. Uh, Chris Drury fills both of those positions. So, I mean, there's so much to dissect here because, uh, look, the nice way to put it is whether it was on the ice whether it was in the NHL offices or or, uh, or, the, or, the, or the Rangers offices, the point is a lot of people made very questionable decisions. That's the nicest way I could possibly put it. And I'm going to try not to go too uh, severe, but a lot, of, a lot of people made some bad decisions here. Um, for, first off, I will say Chris Drury... I think he'll do a great job as the Rangers GM and president. I know there were rumors that Mark Messier would possibly come in, and of course we know he's the greatest leader in the history. I would argue he's the greatest leader in the history of sports, based on what he did in New York, but more importantly, in Ed- and, and just as much in Edmonton, more so really in Edmonton. But uh, Chris Drury is a Stanley Cup champion with the Colorado Avalanche. He was a great Ranger and Ranger captain. He was he was he's from Connecticut. He was a loyal Ranger fan from childhood. Actually, if you don't know, he played in the Little League World Series, uh, and he's and he's obviously been very loyal to the organization. He has turned down, reportedly turned down general managerial jobs from the job offers from the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Florida Panthers. Uh, now, uh, just a, a a defense of of John Davidson and Jeff Gordon here. John Davidson did not have a lot of time with the Rangers this time around. Uh, now, just a, a defense of the Rangers' um, performance first off this year. In a normal year, they probably would have been in the playoffs uh, if the divisions were not realigned due to travel restrictions. 
because of course Canada's in a division all by itself. There are only f there are four divisions this year, but it's uh, much more limited by geography. And uh, the truth is, the Rangers were probably in the best division in hockey. You have whereas you have uh, the the Central, the West, and the and the Canada division all have teams that are fairly underachieving and are far away from the top three teams. So Nashville and the Central. Nashville in the Central, um, who am I thinking of? Uh, St. Louis in the West, and Montreal in the Canada Division. And kind of Winnipeg in that division. The truth is, the uh, the Rangers were in. The Rangers in many of those divisions would actually win. They actually have more points at this moment than the Blues do, and they might finish. And they finished, I think, within two points of Nashville, uh, um, pretty close behind. Winnipeg and uh, Saint and um, and well, even the Islanders as well, but and Montreal. So look, in a normal year, they would have been in the playoffs because they probably played in the best division. They had a better record than St. Louis, and then down the stretch, they were until they ended their season. They had they had a better record than Nashville, Winnipeg, and Montreal. I would say the only bad move. I think the one complaint you can make. The only complaint I think you can actually make about John Davidson and Jeff Gordon, Jeff Gordon's tenure with the Rangers is that they traded Brendan Lemieux and, uh, to, uh, to the Los Angeles Kings. They didn't really get much for him because the truth is Brendan Lemieux at times was really the spark plug for this team. Some people say that you don't need an enforcer in the NHL anymore and that fighting isn't as much of a factor. Now, fighting, it's true, fighting is not as much of a factor, but um, I think when you're in a, the thing is, when you're playing, when guys like Tom Wilson commit the acts they do, and still, he's been suspended five times, when guys like Tom Wilson act the way they do, uh, guys like Brad Marchand act the way they do, um, and they're, they're, they can be, a lot of people will say that they'll be called pests, the professional pests. Some people say that they're, they're somewhat instigators. They don't really, they aren't really reactionary in, in nature. They they create things. You kind of see this on occasion. Obviously, far better player, but you, you kind of see this on occasion with Sidney Crosby as too. If you with Sidney Crosby as well, if you remember the whole thing with the Penguins and the Flyers in 2012 and Crosby whacking away Kimo Timonen's glove. That pretty much started this whole thing in Philadelphia. It was, you see that, and the thing is, all three, all three of those guys were in that division this year. They're all great hockey players. Obviously, Crosby far above the rest of them. Marshawn, a fine player, and Wilson actually a very good hockey player when he chooses to be. But the thing is, when you have guys like that in the in your division, you can be seen as a team that can be picked on. Well, another thing, actually, on top of that, the New York Islanders in general are a tough team when you look at. Uh, I mean, Cal Clutterbucks, Casey Sezikis, Matt Martin, the Islanders are a very tough team. So the thing is, you can't look like a team that gets picked on. In the NHL, look, if you said you can't have... If you're in the NHL, you can go without a you know a, some guy who is an enforcer. Brendan Lemieux, I don't know if... Look, Brendan Lemieux is not exactly Ty Domi, but... The truth is, when they traded him, they made that team a little softer. They still had the heart, and obviously you can see that with Artemi Panarin and Ryan Strome, guys who will really stand out for their team, and even the Stars will 
stand up for their team. But when you trade a guy who can really... The one guy who... I mean, Brendan Smith can do this to an extent, but when you trade away the one guy who can really do this far better than anyone else and actually stand up for his teammates and actually can can fight and, and get fans into the game, get your team, keep the morale up, and just keep from being picked on, that, that's a bad sign. That's, that's one of the few things that I think is separating the Rangers from being a Stanley Cup contender. So I, that, that was the one issue. Um... Now, Glenn Sather, who, is, who has run this team quite well over the last 20 years or so, who's still a special advisor to the team and was the general manager for many years before handing the reins over to Jeff Gorton, is still a special advisor to the team. He denied that the letter to the NHL had to do with the firings. Um, now, let's clarify here. The First off, this statement that was made public was it directly called out the... Uh, it not only directly called out the league office, but it specifically called out George Paris, who's running NHL player safety. And uh, now, now here's the thing. Uh, there is... Look, I, I believe in... I believe in the right to, uh, to, to freedom of speech without consequences if... Uh, when it comes to officiating, if a decision is really so poor that it deserves to be criticized, and I think that was fair. I think I I, I don't think I, I think Tom Wilson should have been suspended. I think he should have been suspended one at least one game because one and and not just you know not just because you know Wilson should be out, but because it would have quieted things down, and we obviously figured that out on Wednesday night of that second game between the Rangers and the Capitals in the week. Um, now, so, the it, and it, to be fair, George Paris also is, uh, was quite the fighter in his day and not necessarily a reactionary fighter as Brendan Shanahan, his predecessor in the league office, was, or, or Colin Campbell before him. Uh, but the thing is that I think Pierre Maguire perhaps said this best, during the Ranger Capital broadcast in the second game, I, I, I'm going to forget these exact words, but he pretty much said, I've never seen a specific NHL official, a specific person in the NHL player safety office criticized for their actions in, in a public manner. It was very unbecoming. Uh, uh, and uh, Now, here's the thing. So... When it came to that, somehow, somehow Tom Wilson was only suspended for was was I'm sorry was not suspended, and somehow was only fined five thousand dollars. This is a guy who's getting paid over five million. Meanwhile, the Rangers for criticizing the decision to somehow only find Tom Wilson five thousand dollars, they are fined two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is just a horrible act of censorship. Um, now, now to be fair. If the words George Paros is if the words George Paros is unfit, do not if the words George if the Rangers do not say in that statement that George Paros that specifically George Paros is unfit to to continue in his position, is that is that fine made? I don't know. If it if it is still made or if there is still some fine made, then it's it's then it's disappointing on the league's part because I you know it was. 
because Wilson probably should have been suspended. But um, I, the fact that the the name George Paros, the name George Paros, and the word unfit came into that sent came into that statement, if not created the fine, exponentially increased it. So I mean, I think. Uh, look, whoever crafted that statement, I think, could have handled it better. And I think the league could have... If the league had just given... I think Pierre Maguire also said this. I, I saw him on um, Dan Patrick's show. I think he also said, look, if if Wilson is fine, just one game. Because the Rangers and Capitals only have one game remaining. Rangers were eliminated from playoff contention. If the Rangers and Cap... If Tom Wilson was fine for that one game... What happened on Wednesday night would not have happened at all, and and you would think that this would be this matter would be done with. But the fact is, you have to punish. Sometimes you have to punish somebody significantly enough that that people don't have to take things in, take revenge into their own hands, and that's what the Rangers did. And that's unfortunately that's what they had to do after what the NHL did after the NHL's decision. Um, going back to this whole. Drury thing. So Chris Drury, after, despite Glenn Sather denying the, the the letter had to do with the firings and that it had to do with a slower pace in reaching the playoffs, Drury said that the expectation before this season was not necessarily to make the playoffs. Now, to be fair, again, because of that's because of youth, it's because of COVID, it's because of travel restrictions, realigned divisions. Uh, but he said that, and he also didn't commit to the playoffs being the goal next year, which really makes you question how or why Davidson or Gorton were fired. And the truth is, if you were going to fire them, the timing is suspicious. They should, If you were going to fire them, wouldn't you fire them at the end of the season? Wouldn't you fire, fire them after the season is over? So the fact that it, that it was... The fact that the firing happened in the immediate aftermath of that letter going out is suspicious to say the least. Um... Yeah, you know, I, I will say, I, I will say, for the Rangers, I think they have the talent and they have the heart to win the stand to stand. I think they have the talent and the heart to be able to win the Stanley Cup multiple times before, possibly as I think they have the heart and the talent to win the Stanley Cup once or perhaps more before the end of Artemi Panarin's contract, uh, let alone before the end of his time in New York. Uh, but uh, and I think they had the coaching to be able to win the Stanley Cup. I thought David Quinn was doing a good job. I thought he did the best he could, and he finished with a 525 points percentage over three years in an incredibly competitive, really, two divisions when you consider how things changed this year. They didn't reach the playoffs the first year. They didn't reach it this year. They were swept in the qualifying round by Carolina last season. But I thought Quinn was a good guy. So David Quinn, after three seasons as the Rangers head coach, was fired. Uh, the the day I record this, May 12th, along with the rest of his immediate coaching staff, goaltender coach Benoit Allaire was retained. And of course, Benoit Allaire, very important. He's been the goalie guru. He's been with that franchise for a long time. He's been there. He was there from the start with Henrik Lundqvist, uh, who is, uh, you could make the argument as a top three goal. You could make the argument as a top three goaltender. Obviously, Brodeur and Wah are way in front, but you can make the argument that he's a top five, maybe a top three goaltender of all time. Uh, so the thing, so uh, the Rangers. Here's what separates the Rangers from potentially being a Stanley Cup contender, at least in terms of personnel, because God knows they have a lot. They have a lot of t- stiff competition within their division, let alone, let alone the rest of the league. 
So one, they need to find a coaching staff that is that commands the respect and the discipline that Quinn did. Uh, they need to find an enforcer, and maybe and not not a Ty Domi or a Tiger Williams, perhaps, or somebody who is an instigator, but someone who is tough enough that can act that can be reactionary if something like Tom something like what happened with Tom Wilson happens again, which inevitably it probably will, whether it's with him or not. Uh, and lastly, a player with deep playoff experience, not necessarily someone who has won the Stanley Cup, but someone who has probably been at least to a conference final um, with, an, with another team. So that's, uh, and, and by that, of course, you know, th- that doesn't include someone like Chris Kreider, who is, I believe, the one holdover from the team that reached the finals seven years ago now. So they need someone from another team who has gone deep into the postseason. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, there was another quote that Pierre Maguire had per, uh, that he had from Brendan Smith and Brendan Smith, who I think was one of the few people in the right in this entire situation. I've never, I've never seen a situation in sports in which so many different parties handled it poorly. Uh, one of the few that I think handled it correctly was, uh, was Brendan Smith. He said, quote, I have no blood against, bad blood against the Washington Capitals, but I have bl- bad blood with Tom Wilson. So, which really, again, begs the question, why wasn't Tom Wilson suspended at least just for one game uh, to prevent this med- to prevent this entire madness? And that madness was 141 penalty minutes in the game, 85 to 56 favoring the Rangers, 12 fighting majors, all in the first period, the biggest one, of course, being Brendan Smith going toe-to-toe with Tom Wilson before things were broken up. And uh, it was uh, very reminiscent of Rangers-Devils in 2012 when you had all three guys, uh, you had all three forwards go at it um, off the draw with the opposing three forwards. And, uh, I, you know, the, the, the NHL did, the NHL brought this on themselves when they decided not to suspend Tom Wilson. And the truth is, if, if Tom Wilson had not left the game with an injury in the second period, this would have been way worse. This, I, 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 to think that 141 penalty minutes is, is not a lot in comparison to what it should have been is, is remarkable. That shows how, how poorly the situation was handled by a lot of people, really. And now, to be fair, Pavel Buchnevich, and I believe rightfully, suspended one game for cross-checking. The NHL got that right. He got he cross-checked Anthony Mantha in the face on Wednesday. Five in a game. He got suspended one game. It's the correct action. It's the correct action, but the thing is, it's the correct action out of context. Because Pablo Buchne- because it's the same thing. It's pretty similar what Buchnevich did to Mantha, what Wilson did to him. I this this I highly doubt this would have happened if Wilson was actually suspended for that one game. That's just the frustration of Buchnevich thinking he's not getting a fair shake from the officials, not getting a fair shake from the league, and that he's getting picked on. Uh, I, I will say, though it does not excuse Tom Wilson's actions, I will give him credit because he apparently reached out to Artemi Panarin to check on his condition. Um, that's fortunate, and truth is, if you're if you're someone who believes in karma, and if... or if you're a Ranger fan or you're someone around the league who is, disapp- is who disagrees with Tom Wilson's actions or, or, or the league's actions, there is perhaps some karma when there was perhaps some karma when uh, Nikolai Obey Kubel 
of the Philadelphia Flyers, and seemingly, accident, seemingly accidentally, of course. It looked like they were both trying to make a play for the puck. Uh, Nikolai Aube-Kubel hit Tom Wilson knee-on-knee knee this past weekend, and it was not a pretty hit. I mean, uh, you know, he... I, I'm not sure if he returned to the game, but he was—he definitely came up limping, and you just wonder if that's, you know, what what goes around comes around. Um, more importantly, and the truth is, if, if this thing hadn't been handled, I mean, if, if Wilson hadn't done what he did and uh, and and the had not been ejected and, and the, the league and the Rangers and, and all the firings, had none of this stuff happened, um, we would be focusing on what's the most important thing here. And that is that T.J. Oshie scored a hat-trick in his second game at the Garden. Um, Oshie scored a hat-trick... Uh, unfortunately, it was one day after his father Tim's death at age 56 after a battle with Alzheimer's. Um, it was, so of course it was, it stems from a horrible story and a very sad story, but I think the fact that, that Oshie could return is just something where, you know, eventually we have to move on, we have to move forward. I actually, you know, I, I remember thinking as soon as I heard that Oshie's dad had passed, I, w- I was thinking, oh, God, because I remembered um, I remembered when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup in 2018, and T.J. Oshie, I believe, being interviewed by, of course, Pierre Maguire, was noticeably emotional about winning the Cup. And I, I can't remember if... I can't remember if Pierre Maguire asked this question uh, about asked a question about his father or his family, but uh, Oshi really started to break down and really said that uh, this was, that his father didn't really remember much anymore, but this was going to be one of the few things he did remember. So uh, just an incredibly emotional time, and obviously, unfortunately, these things happen. These things happen sometimes, uh, but just T.J. Oshie fighting through that adversity, that's really what we should be recognizing the most in this whole mess, in this whole crazy situation, is uh, T.J. Oshie just paying tribute to his father. Um, Moving on here, uh, further here in the NHL, we're going to talk about two more NHL coaching decisions, two mutual coaching decisions. First off, John Tortorella mutually agrees to part ways after six seasons as the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Tortorella did an outstanding job at the Blue Jackets. He is uh, he has to be by far their, their best coach in franchise history. He is their winningest coach in their, I believe, 19-year history. He helped guide the team to its first playoff series, vic- playoff series victory in 2019, a first-round sweep of the President's Trophy-winning Tampa Bay Lightning, the first time ever a President's Trophy winner had been swept out of the playoffs in the first round. Uh, they came back from a three-goal deficit in the first game in Tampa. By the way, Tortorella, of course, of course, coached the Lightning to a Stanley Cup title back in 2004, so it was even bigger for him. Of course, the Lightning then knocked off the Blue Jackets in the playoffs last year in the first round. Now, I would say that this was probably a bigger loss for the for Columbus just because of what John Tortorella has meant to this team over the last six years, as opposed to what they did in the previous 13, which was not much. I mean, for that organization to finally win a playoff series 
was so huge, and the way that they did was incredible. Now, they made one deal this year that I thought was going to really shift this franchise into overdrive, and that was trading away Pierre-Luc Dubois to the Winnipeg Jets. But in exchange, they got Patrick Laine, which I thought was a really good deal. Now, Laine, I don't know if he's as great a defensive forward, but he's a much better scorer, and really kind of the guy that they needed after Artemi Panarin left the franchise. But, I mean, really, for Tortorella, this was the only move that really made sense because Nick Foligno, their captain, was traded away to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and David Savard, by far their best defenseman, was traded to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So this team was in full rebuild mode, and if you're Tortorella, your guy who's won the Stanley Cup before, this is, you know, you can't commit to that. Tortorella should be very proud of his tenure in Columbus and really should be as proud of his tenure there as his tenure with any other team he's coached. So I mentioned, led the Lightning to the Stanley Cup Final in 2004, led the Rangers to the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012, and led them to four playoff appearances in five seasons. He was in Vancouver for a brief time, but this this was incredibly impressive because, you know, you win, you win the Cup in Tampa, that's one thing, but Columbus is part of the youngest expansion before Vegas and Seattle in the NHL, and he to guide that franchise to its first ever playoff series victory is incredibly impressive. He is he's the greatest coach in the history of that in the history of that short-lived franchise. He has 673 wins. That's actually 12th in NHL history. Uh, it may be further down. I'm trying to think. It might be down to 13th now because I know Peter Laviolette was trailing him by one entering Sunday. But he has more wins than a number of great Hall of Fame coaches, including Toe Blake, who won eight Stanley Cup titles, second most as a head coach, only to Scotty Bowman. But he is definitely going to the Hall of Fame, and the truth is he is still young enough that he could probably still keep coaching for a long time. And some team, I don't know who, but some team in the NHL should go out and pay for his services to be their next head coach. Speaking of head coaches... One more discussion with head coaching here. Arizona Coyotes head coach Rick Tockett mutually agrees with the team to part ways. After four years, Coyotes went 125, 131, and 34 in four seasons under Tockett. They missed the playoffs the first two years before reaching the playoffs in the bubble. Now, they were an 11 seed because, remember, they of course, they had the 12 seeds in each conference with the you know the, the, the first-round qualifier last year, and they went to the 2014 playoff. They upset the Nashville Predators three games to one before falling to the Colorado Avalanche four games to one in the first round. The Avalanche would go on to the Western Conference Finals and nearly reach the Cup Final. Um, the Coyotes, uh, again, this, this is kind of a good move, I think, more so for the head coach because the Coyotes were above average in this league on special teams, but they have struggled a lot more at even strength. Their players are older than average. I think you see that with, with Phil Kessel in particular. They, in particular, they brought him in late, and they were, frankly, below average defensively. It's not because it's not really their goaltending because I mean, Darcy Kemper, I remember in the, in the playoffs last year, carried that team on his back through a few of those games against Colorado. Uh, it... it they are below average defensively. They allow far too many shots, and when you allow that many shots, eventually 
you know, one or two are going to slip past the goaltender, no matter how hard he tries. It also does not help that this team's future is in jeopardy because they did not have a pick higher than the fifth round in 2020. So they didn't have a first rounder. Their second rounder was stripped by the NHL for draft combine violations. And they didn't really have their fourth rounder. The team cut ties with fourth rounder Mitchell Miller because of, and I won't go into specifics because it's it's incredibly disappointing and, and um, incredibly sad and incredibly graphic, but I'll, but severe bullying accusations from his time in high school. If you, if you want to look him up, his name is Mitchell uh, Mitchell Miller. Very disappointing. So that's, obviously there's nothing you can really do about that, but when you have three three rounds without a pick anyway, and then this happens, it's, it's something that you can't feel, about which you can't really feel that good about a coach looking at your future. Tockett really did what he could. And I think he probably deserves a, a chance to coach another team after finally leading a team to the playoffs as a head coach. I, one that really comes to mind for me, if the Buffalo Sabres do not remove Don, Gramado, Don Granado's interim tag, which I think they probably should, the way the, the Sabres played down the stretch, even with that roster, then I think Tockett could be a good choice for Buffalo, especially because he grew up in Toronto, within the city limits of Toronto, just about an hour away. By car, of course. One more thing before we head to a break, talking about the NHL here. The Tampa Bay Lightning play an all-black line, possibly the first in NHL history. Matthew Joseph, Jamel Smith, and Daniel Walcott, the the latter of whom uh, made his NHL debut in this game. They did this against the Florida Panthers within the last week. And it's incredible to see. It's, It's wonderful... To see this, obviously, the NHL has not had a lot of diversity amongst its players. I don't know if that's entirely, you know, I, I don't know if that's the NHL trying to suppress any of that. I don't think it's the NHL trying to suppress that. It's just unfortunate that we haven't seen as many African-American players in this league. We've seen a select few that have made a significant impact. You look at P.K. Subban, you look at Joel Ward, obviously Willie O'Ree, I mean, Wayne Simmons, Donald Brashear. Uh, you know, you, you see a lot of fine African-American players, but unfortunately it's not, they're not that common. So to see this is really something cool. And of course you hope that we can eventually get to the point where, or I mean three black guys playing in the NHL is not, big news. You hope, you hope you get to the point where it's, it's a lot more common, but this is something, you know, hope, hopefully some kid is going to, some kids are going to see this and be inspired and say, you know, I, I could play, I could play in the NHL. Now, I don't know if this, from what I've seen, they don't know if this is the first all black line in, any, in NHL history. It's not the first all black line in hockey history, but it is it is definitely at least one of the first in NHL history, and it has to be the first in, I mean, if it's not the first ever, it's got to be the first in, I would think, at least 40, 40, 50 years, I would have to imagine, considering that's, I don't know, considering how far they go back and record things, and considering how, uh, both on paper and on film. Just a side note with that, by the way, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers got really chippy this past week, and it's going to make for great playoff hockey in the first round. 
the, the Panthers, I mean, look at it. These are the two founding fathers of, of hockey pretty much south of Atlanta because, we were, of course, the Flames used to play in Atlanta. But before that, before Lightning and the Panthers showed up, there were no teams south of L.A. And really the only team in the southern, technically in the southern United States that had a hockey team, or the only team in the southern United States in the NHL technically was the Washington Capitals because Maryland and D.C. are technically considered the south. So these were some of, some of the founding fathers of hockey in the in the southern United States. Then there was some... Uh, of, course, of course, they, they were bound to develop a rivalry. The Panthers reached the final first in 1996. They have not been back, though. The Lightning have won the Cup twice, including last year. Uh, you know, one thing... One thing I did notice that it's it's a it's a physical rivalry as well because I, I mentioned of course you know I'm rather surprised that Wilson didn't get suspended but Patrick Maroon did so Pat Maroon um, seemingly tr- escaped the grasp of, of an official and charged Brandon Montour who was within the grasp of another official so which really just escalated things it was worthy of a suspension. Uh, and an unnecessary act of escalation, but I still think that kind of goes for both that and the whole Wilson situation, but that obviously Pat Maroon is going to be probably public enemy number one of the Florida Panthers when those two teams face off. Panthers will have home ice in that series. Now, I would go into a, a, a predictions for the NH, for the Stanley Cup playoffs, but not everything, not every matchup has been locked into place yet. I know it's going to be... I know already that in the East it's going to be Isles at Pens, Bruins at Caps. I know for a fact that St. Louis will play at either Vegas or Colorado. It's just a, I know color and I know Colorado and Vegas are fighting for the President's Trophy. We know for sure it's going to be Montreal at Toronto and Winnipeg at Edmonton. And we know for sure it's going to be Nashville at Carolina and Tampa Bay at Florida, but it's just a question as to the Pacific Division at this point. So I, ju- I don't want to make any predictions until everything has been locked up. I think the playoffs, I believe the playoffs will start within the next week. I'm not entirely sure. I saw something that the NHL would perhaps start the Canadian postseason immediately after the regular season ends, which they probably should, so they can speed up things as they... As you know, the Canadian team will have to wait two weeks, or the American teams perhaps will have to wait two weeks to cross the border once the second round comes to an end. Uh, but that does it for this portion of the show. Come back in a little bit and talk about no hitters in the NLB. We'll talk about Albert Pujols and a lot more here on Sports in the Waiting Room. Welcome back to Sports in the Waiting Room. Moving on to the MLB. Really a pitcher's week. Baltimore Orioles pitcher John Means no-hits the Seattle Mariners. He becomes the first Oriole to throw a no-hitter since 1991. That was a combined no-hitter. And he's the first Oriole to throw a no-hitter by himself since Jim Palmer in 1969. Now, you you would think in this day and age that this would be the combined no-hitter and 1991 would be the individual no-hitter. But it's honestly more remarkable because... I mean, what the, the guys that have passed through that organization, obviously Jim Palmer, Jim Palmer pitched for like another, 
God, Jim Palmer pitched for maybe another 10 years uh, after that ended, and he's like one of the best pitchers of the last half century, or 60 years or so. And uh, Mike, Mus- well, Mike Mussina came through there later. Kurt Schilling was briefly with the Orioles early on in his career. They've had a lot of really good pitchers, but most notably, it's remarkable because the Orioles had the only staff in Major League history with four 20-game winners in the same season. That 1971 American League Championship team, Jim Palmer, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, and Pat Dobson. Actually, if you look at the stats of those guys, they, they're not as good as Palmer. And Palmer, of course, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the best pitchers ever. But when you consider that wins aren't as... Rec- well, wins are incredibly important, but they... But the having a lower amount of wins doesn't necessarily detract from how good a pitcher you are in this day and age. If you look at Jacob DeGrom in particular, and if you look at those guys, even considering their win totals, if you look at the rest of their stats, they're actually, at least a couple of them are actually borderline Hall of Famers. So it's incredibly remarkable. Believe it or not, the set, that 71 team did not win the World Series. They lost the World Series in seven games to the Pittsburgh Pirates at home. Um, it, it, funny enough, this actually would have been a perfect game if not for a pass ball on a strikeout, but, you know, let's not dwell on it. Something that I thought was really cool out of all of this was that Means has said this was, and he said this before before he even threw the no-hitter, he said that he was on the verge of retirement before being called up to the Orioles in 2018 at age 25. He became an All-Star in 2019 in the MLB, Really, what's really impressive is that he was an all-star in the MLB and never was an all-star in the minor leagues. So something that's really cool for the Orioles, and he, you know, that that's a franchise that needs some help in a lot of a lot of different spots. But maybe they finally have a pitcher to help carry them. Moving further west on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, of course, it's the it's the B&O Warehouse Building in right field behind Utah Street at Camden Yards. And B&O is Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So moving over to Ohio, on the other end of that railroad, Wade Miley of the Cincinnati Reds, no hits the Indians in Cleveland. Second no-hitter this week in Major League Baseball. The first by the Reds since Homer Bailey in 2013. Homer Bailey, who I believe threw two no-hitters for his career. It's the second season in MLB history with four no-hitters before the end of May. That was, the other one was 1917, and let's remember that the Wade Miley no-hitter, the last, the most recent of the four, was May 7th. So there's a lot of time left to see if we can get someone else to do it. He, Those two guys, join, excuse me, uh, Miley joins Means, of course, and before that, in chronological order, Joe Musgrove, the San Diego native, threw the Padres' first no-hitter. They become the last franchise to finally get their first no-hitter. And Carlos Rodon of the Chicago White Sox. This doesn't even count Madison Bumgarner's seven-inning no-hitter in the doubleheader. Really, that should be considered a no-hitter with an asterisk on it. Not really his fault, but I don't know. I'd like to think if Bumgarner had no-hit, had a no-hitter through the first two innings of his next start, then they would count it. Then they would count it as a no-hitter. But this honestly could be the first real year of the pitcher since 1968. Uh, so I, of course, 1968 was each M, the MVP of each league was a pitcher. Bob Gibson in the 
National League, who I believe set a modern-day record for for lowest ERA. And Denny McLean won 30 games for the Detroit Tigers and won American League MVP. They matched up very well in the World Series. Bob Gibson set a World Series record, and I believe a postseason record, by striking out 17 Tigers in the first game of the World Series. He, I want to say, won two games in that No, I'm sorry. Mickey Lolich ended up winning three games in that World Series, including Game 7, a 4-1 win in St. Louis, and one World Series MVP. And then, of course, after that, the mound was lowered because the pitching was that good. And, you know, every few years, that's the great thing about pitching. Pitchers always adapt because it's always a few years. It's a few years, and then the, and then baseball has to try to make it harder so they can try to get more offense because they think it'll bring more people in the ballpark. So whether it was the corked baseball or the the lowering of the mound or the designated hitter or you know on and on and on the I don't know maybe even the, the the stupid extra inning rule with the with the runner on second the pitchers continue to adapt and it's incredibly impressive. So the the pitchers really the MLB, you could say the MLB makes that offensive curve. It's really the pitchers that make that curve. Now, something that's really impressive out of this whole Miley thing, this included an 83-minute rain delay. Unfortunately, it was at the start of the game. If it was in the middle of the game, he probably would not have pitched. But it was before the game. The Indians become, believe it or not, the 17th team to be no-hit twice in a single season. And Something of note, actually, is that the Indians actually played quite a good game, and, and and Miley was matched for eight innings by Zach Plesac, nephew of the one uh, the great former pitcher Dan Plesac, great MLB Network analyst. Plesac pitched eight shutout innings for Cleveland, didn't get the loss, but the Cleveland bullpen let up three in the ninth. So Plesac should be, even though he's on the uh, wrong the wrong side of history, should be very proud of his performance. Something that I thought was. Really cool here, Miley, a native of, I would, I would think this is Loranger, Louisiana, which is ac- across from Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. I've, I've actually talked to my mom about this, because you, 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 she's been down there. Lake Pontchartrain, the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, I think, is the longest single bridge in the world, the longest one-piece bridge in the world. Uh, that goes for, I think, something like 23 miles. So that's just a little fun fact that goes from just outside New Orleans to across Lake Pontchartrain to more uh, you know, more inland Louisiana. But that's just something to note. So based on geography, I would think Miley was probably an Astros fan growing up, but he left the team, likely, I would think, a mutual decision after one season, 2019, so just a interesting timing with everything that happened with the Astros and uh, good for Wade Miley, who is a guy who has been around in this league for over a decade. Really bounced around and just a good feel-good story. Some news that's not as great. Albert Pujols released by the Angels after 10 seasons, 9 full seasons with the organization. Was not great this year in terms of pure hitting. Hit 198. That being said, he had five homers in 24 games played, which is actually, I didn't think it was that bad. Going over his career, obviously, Pujols played 11 years with the Cardinals. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. 
well, let's start off with his options for the future here. I, I, I don't know if he's cleared waivers yet, but he was designated for assignment. So I don't know if any team picks him up. Uh, first off, the Yankees are always rumored when these sort of things happen because their money and their success. And the, uh, on top of that, he actually lived briefly in New York as a teenager. He could also sign with the Cardinals, either to play out his career there, or I, I think what's quite possible is for him to sign a one-day contract and just, just end it now. He uh, Another thing is he spent part of his high school, spent part of his time in high school, as well as his time in community college in the Kansas City area, so maybe he could sign with the Royals. Um, he will, obviously he'll be inducted into the Hall of Fame as a Cardinal, based on length of tenure, as well as uh, the fact that he won two world championships and three pennants with the Cardinals, and individual success, he was a better ball player in St. Louis. All right, so including, for what they paid, I don't think it was a great deal, of course, when they signed him for 10 years and $250 million, or 10 years, 254 Look, he's not clearly not worth the money, even with inflation, but I still think it was actually a good signing because I think the problem with the Angels was they, they have not had the pitching to take them to the playoffs more than once in the last decade, let alone the, win the World Series. Obviously, you got Albert Pujols in the latter 10 years of his career, and he wasn't as good as the, fir the first 11 in St. Louis. Artie Moreno and the, the Angels organization took a risk with that. I think for it's not as big a disappointment as I think some people would say. Obviously, the fact that they didn't win ballgames, but I don't know if I would have said I'm going to go out and get Pujols to try to carry this team along with Mike Trout. I don't... I mean, you talk about Trout. Trout's the best ball player in the last decade, and he's rapidly becoming one of the greatest baseball players ever. But, I mean, if he couldn't carry them, and Pujols actually played fairly well. Not as well as he did in St. Louis, but if you look at his stats... Aside from, so including the 24 games this year, and I said, I calculated it this way, I said if 24 games out of 162 this year, so 9 and 24, 160 seconds seasons. So if you include those games, he averaged over his 10 or so year career in Anaheim, 24 homers, 86 RBIs, which is not, they're not bad numbers. Those are fairly good numbers, um, pr productive in the middle of the order. And obviously, a lot better in the first seven or eight years, really. He's just gotten hurt more in the last couple of years. Biggest, the bigger problem was he was a 300 hitter in St. Louis. He was a 258 hitter in Anaheim. Aside from missing 63 games in the 2013 season, he was generally pretty healthy until 2018. Before then, he did not miss more than 15 games. So, the thing is... I don't think you can blame Pujols. I think part of it you can blame the the angel management and the organization for making this deal, but I think more so it's that they didn't really they didn't really build around him. They brought in Anthony Rendon very late in Pujols' tenure. By the time where you couldn't really take advantage of Pujols because he was a lot more because he was a lot more injury prone. The last good pitcher they had was Zach Greinke. A really good pitcher they have is Zach Greinke, and that was for a very brief time. They brought in Julio Tehran, but it's very late in his career. They really did not do a lot to, to build around those guys. So 
So, uh, and you know, he did a decent job. He obviously Pujols had a great eleven years in St. Louis, and I think an an above average, fairly above average, ten years in Anaheim. So I think that's that's what puts him where he is. Pujols for his career, six hundred and sixty-seven home runs, fifth all time, most by a foreign-born player. Two thousand one hundred and seventeen RBI, third all time, most by a foreign-born player. Two ninety-eight career average, again far better in St. Louis. 3,253 hits, that's 14th all-time, again, most by a foreign-born player. Albert Poo, I, I, I think I'd still give the edge probably to either Roberto Clemente or Ichiro Suzuki, but Albert Pujols is definitely making a, definitely makes a case to be perhaps the, the greatest player from outside the United States and one of the best hitters in the history of the game. He's a three-time National League Most Valuable Player, so... Uh, really, that's tied for the most all-time because Barry Bonds has Barry Bonds is the only player with more than three MVPs in Major League Baseball. That being said, he had the last four were between 2001 and 2004. 2001, of course, was the year he hit 73 home runs, and he probably the estimate is that he probably started using steroids around 99. 98 or 99, around the time that McGuire and Sosa started, just based on, one, just physically looking at him because he blew up like a balloon. And then also that the, that it was coming after McGuire and Sosa were breaking these records. So Bonds won four consecutive NL MVPs from 01 to 04, probably on steroids the entire time. So really he won three. So with that in mind, Albert Pujols tied for the most MVPs of any ball player alongside, and these are ridiculous names, uh, Mike Trout going to the Hall of Fame. Mickey Mantle, I'd say top four player of all time. Yogi Berra, one of the greatest catchers ever. Joe DiMaggio, I would say the greatest center fielder ever and a top three player ever. Jimmy Fox, one of the greatest first basemen of all time. Stan Musial, I think maybe the only one, maybe one of two or three players, uh, only players that are better than Albert Pujols all-time in, in a St. Louis uniform. Roy Campanella, one of the greatest catchers ever. Mike Schmidt, probably the best pure-hitting third baseman ever, and I, I would say only behind Brooks Robinson as a third baseman. Now, to be fair, Alex Rodriguez, and these were all after his time in Seattle, and he admitted he, he started using steroids once he got to Texas, so those don't really count. And Barry Bonds, three of those really count because they were with his time in Pittsburgh. Maybe one of those when he was, when he was in San Francisco early on before he really started juicing. And, of course, you forget how good a player Bonds was before steroids. So that's that's great company. Pujols, in addition, two-time world champion, three-time National League champion. Now, one thing I just want to bring up, just for just full disclosure, in 2013, former Cardinal great Jack Clark accused Pujols of using PEDs on his radio show in St. Louis. Now, I initially thought it's po- it's possible that he actually did it, especially based on his physique. But, I mean, to be fair, he also kind of came up like this. Um, after Clark was fired by the station and Pujols, uh, f- uh, Pujols filed a defamation suit against him, Clark took back his accusation in 2014, leading to the suit being dropped. Now, look, we obviously don't know for sure that he didn't take them 
that he did or didn't take them. But I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. If this was the only only accusation, I mean, you, you never know. Maybe Clark dropped the dropped the suit just to avoid any further damages. But I'd like to give Pujols the benefit of the doubt. Right. Moving on here to the East Coast for a moment. Carlos Carrasco put on the 60-day injured list, pushing back his season start to May 28th at the earliest. Disappointing if you're a Mets fan, but it also shows how strong the Mets really have been when you remember that he came in that Lindor deal and the pitching has still been outstanding. They bounced back as of late. So, moving on to one of the bigger and more controversial stories of the week, one of the more divisive stories of the week, and that, of course, is that Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil claim to have gotten into an argument over whether they saw a, rac a rat or a raccoon. Some think they were actually arguing over Lindor's performance, and that's why they were arguing. I don't know. There was, there was, there were a few Mets that looked like they were barreling into the, the, the tunnel going into the clubhouse this past week, and that's what they came out and said. Lindor and McNeil said that. Um, Zach Scott, the Mets GM, pretty much said that you know that's not that they should really come out and tell the truth. I I I really don't know if if that's the response you should have as the GM. I don't know. I look. It does seem like it might not be a very plausible story, considering rats and raccoons. They don't really look that much. I mean, they're not necessarily attractive creatures, but they. Or beautiful creatures, but they they don't exactly look alike. But if it is untrue, give them both credit for downplaying any real animosity they've had. Uh, they they've really it seems like they've moved past it, whether it if it even did exist. So especially because Lindor is starting to hit, and the Mets are starting to win games, they've uh, they've really been on a tear in the last week. For example, they came back from down 4 nothing to beat the Diamondbacks on Friday night. They came back from down 2 nothing to beat the Orioles last night in late innings. As uh, Last night as I record this, I mean. Now, to be fair, if they have watched the Cockamouse episode of How I Met Your Mother, then they could both have a point. Uh, I, I did tweet earlier this week that I would go into a little further discussion about this. So if you do not watch How I Met Your Mother, first off, excellent program with the exception of the last two minutes of the series. There is an episode, I can't remember if it's season one or season two, where Marshall and Lily find a cockamouse in their apartment. It truly is a cockamouse. It is. It, it cannot be destroyed by a heavy book that they throw onto it. It is. Uh, it has both cockroach and mouse-like abilities. And in the end, they actually get, throw it out of the apartment just to get rid of it, only to be stunned when they discover that it can actually fly. Um, uh, fascinating, fascinating concept. Uh, and, you know, the raccoon per could perhaps exist. The raccoon could perhaps exist. Uh, it's... And that's something I... Really, I'm, I, uh, Carter Bays and Craig Thomas, the, the creators of the series, are really going to have to... Do are really going to have to discuss this with the Mets and, and, and perhaps incorporate this into the spinoff. I, wow, I, actually, I'm thinking about that now. Yeah, they're having the spinoff. They're finally doing how I'm, well, kind of the spinoff, really. They're doing How I Met Your Father on Hulu, and I know Hilary Duff is uh, 
the going to be the the mother. I'm really hoping that they get McNeil and Lindor to make a cameo. Actually, I wow, how did I not think of this before? I'm really hoping they get Lindor and McNeil to make a cameo and talk about the raccoon as opposed to the cockamouse. That's gonna I that yeah, I'm gonna have to talk. I'm gonna have to talk to some people about that. So, you know, get please get that out there. Uh, one more thing to mention with this whole Mets thing. If they catch fire, then the fans will really have to embrace this and start throwing like plush or rubber rats and raccoons onto the field whenever, either whenever a run scores or whenever someone homers. Now, I say this because in a similar fan, really this started with all the Red Wing fans throwing octopi on the ice before the game, and then later on Nashville Predator fans would throw catfish on the ice. It's become sort of a tradition in hockey, and then, though they were not real octopi, not real catfish, or real animals, so the Florida Panther fans really embraced this rather pretty much from the outset of their franchise's history, within a couple of years. So in the night before, opening night of 1995-1996 season, Scott Mellenby of the Florida Panthers found a rat in their dressing room and he quote-unquote one-timed it like you 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 know you one time a pass he one-timed a rat and killed it in the locker in the dressing room then scored two goals later that night which was which was later attributed as a rat trick later attributed as a rat trick by goaltender John Van Beesbrook so Scott Mellenby I believe ended up leading the team in goals that year with 32. And this team, the little team that could, that had only existed, I think, for three years, made a stunning run all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And until until the Golden Knights made it uh, three years ago, Florida was the quickest expansion franchise to reach the Stanley Cup final. Now, en route to that Cup final, even though they, they were swept by the Colorado Avalanche, they start fans eventually got these rubber rats and started throwing them on the ice after goals. Now, some some of them were thrown on the ice after goals later in the year. Over two thousand were thrown during the playoffs, and on top of that, it was the year of the rat in Chinese astrology. I, I'm telling you, if you look up, look up Avalanche Panthers Game Three Stanley Cup Final. Because I can't remember who it is. I don't know if it's Mellenby or Rob Niedermeyer. Somebody comes off the wing and scores a goal to open the game. And there are, I'm telling you, the ice has to be like, like 15% of the ice is probably covered in rats. They're coming, uh, in rubber rats. They're coming from all different directions. So if you, re- I, that's, that's the way that you get, you get people going. When you have that sort of folk story that gets people together. So if the Mets really make a run now, Go back and embrace that raccoon. That raccoon. Uh, you know the the. I mean the Red Sox had that. You know cowboy up. Uh, you talk about uh, the Yankees two or three years ago where they had you know the thumbs down. So many uh, the St. Louis Blues had Gloria. The Panthers had the the rats. You know it, these these are really things that could bring a team together. And as we move on, one more thing in. Uh, in MLB discussion, and that is that the Oakland A's will begin exploring the possibility of relocation with the blessing of Major League Baseball. Now, 
in case you were wondering, and I was talking to this, uh, talking about this with my dad and my brother last night. My dad said, "Wait a minute! I thought they were giving. I thought they were getting a new ballpark. I thought the city was giving them a new ballpark. I thought so as well. But apparently, even though a few weeks ago the A's asked city, the Oakland City Council, to vote on a twelve billion dollar mixed use development plan, which would help them open a ballpark at." Uh, at Howard Terminal, which I think is like right on the water. It's supposed to be in a much nicer area. And on top of that, and you never hear this from a franchise, the A's apparently, I think, want to start some sort of mall or some sort of development on the on what would what would then be the former Oakland Coliseum land by, by Oracle Arena and actually make something nice out of that. So they would try to con- continue making that neighborhood nice. You never hear that. You never hear that from a from a, an organization that they would restore their old home as well. Uh, so I, I I really don't know why the city council has not even acknowledged this plan, let alone voted on it yet, let alone given them the money. Uh, again, I'm not a you know I'm not a politician. I don't know, and I I'm not an e- economist, but I'm shocked that they haven't even acknowledged this. Now, for Oakland, this could really be a move just to keep things pushing along, which I hope it is. I don't want to see them leave Oakland, even though apparently there's a rumor they can go and join the Raiders in Las Vegas and have a ballpark next to them. All right, frankly, if, if Oakland's going to treat them this way, I wouldn't blame them whatsoever. Uh, the A's, just to point out, have been in Oakland since 1968. This is a team that's moved around. It's moved twice. They... I believe the A's, the Braves, and maybe technically the Orioles are the only teams to actually move, I believe, are the only teams to actually move multiple times. So the Braves, of course, before they were in Atlanta, they were in Milwaukee, and before that, Boston. The Orioles were the St. Louis Browns, and before that, I believe they were actually either at the very beginning of the American League or maybe when it was still like a minor league team, they were actually the, the original Milwaukee Brewers. So I don't... I The A's are one of the rare few teams, even though they're one of the... like one of the four... probably a top four franchise all time in terms of championship success. They have been in Oakland only since 1968. They were in Kansas City from 1955 through 67. A lot of people forget that actually for about three years, can't they were actually the furthest west team in the country in the brief time where they had moved between them moving from Philadelphia and the Dodgers and Giants moving west. And then, of course, they were the Philadelphia A's from 1901 to 55. So meaning that their time in Oakland has actually almost equaled their amount of time in Philadelphia, which is surprising because they've won nine championships and they actually won more championships in Philadelphia than they did in Oakland. Believe it or not, the Philadelphia A's actually have the most championships of a team from Philadelphia ever. They, they have more championships than the Eagles, the Phillies, the Sixers, or the Flyers. It's, it's, it's very funny. That's all, that also shows how powerful they were. Now, if you look at the... If you just look up sort of the complaints from visiting players about the clubhouse in Oakland... I mean, really, this is still a football stadium. It's a mixed-use stadium for, even though the Raiders aren't playing there anymore, they really need a new stadium considering, I mean, I don't want to go into specifics, and I can't quite remember everything, but something about the clubhouse showers being 
and, and the plumbing being disgusting. So I, I really don't know how they have not, even a renovation of that building would be a significant improvement because that, that place has been voted, I think that place has been voted one of the worst ballparks in the league. Uh, so I, I'm really hoping that the Oakland City Council will get moving on that. Two more things before I go. One, and this is one of the few times I'll actually talk about it, but horse racing so trainer Bob Baffert suspended from racing at Churchill Downs after Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit tests positive for PEDs after the race. And I'd also like to mention that the horse, I believe, since then has tested negative and will be able to run at the Preakness Stakes in Baltimore. But uh, the, I believe, I believe they stripped the title. I'm not sure. But Medina Spirit, first off, uh, uh, Baffert apparently denies doping the horse, but he was still suspended. This is such a terrible black eye for the sport, because when you think of horse racing, even if you're more of a casual fan of horse racing, as I probably am, I'll watch the Triple Crown, that's about it. The one person of whom you can possibly think, the one human of whom you possibly think when it comes to horse racing, is Bob Baffert. He's the one guy who is always there. Bob Baffert to, is to horse training like Meryl Streep is to the Oscars. Bob Baffert is to the Triple Crown as Meryl Streep is to the Oscars because he's always there and he's always got some sort of... some, and he's always got someone or something to promote. Um, so I, it's, it's, he's, most, he's by far the most recognizable and at least before this, the most respect, respected human being involved in it. The other thing I want to know really leads to it really leads us to ask why horses were tested for PEDs after the race, not before. Why would you test a horse after the race? Because even if it's done on short notice, I think it's far better to have a race with fewer or if you have some waiting in the wings, perhaps replacement horses than to have a race with horses trained unnaturally. It's incredibly disappointing to see that. And again, what's really weird is that the, the second weird finish in a row, the second cheating finish in a row in the Kentucky Derby, remember last year, of course, when I believe it was Country House was given, I think Country House was given the title after just, you know, a cutback in the middle lanes. I don't know. It was it was so weird. Um, so hopefully the Pre Preakness Stakes goes off without a hitch, and the same for the Belmont Stakes. Last thing, uh, Tim Tebow expected, I don't know if he officially did, but at least expected a sign with the Jacksonville Jaguars as a tight end to join his former head coach, Urban Meyer, now, I said a while ago, um, I, I said probably when, when he, once he joined the Jets that he probably should have been a tight end the whole time. This guy with a you know, decent arm, but he really built for a college, as a passer, built for a college offense. And the truth is he's, he's big enough that he's not really a wide receiver, but he's also tall enough that he's not really a running back. He's built to be a tight end. And he's a good enough athlete that that's really where he should be. He is not... I don't think he's actually played it down since he left the Jets. 
Um, I, I don't know if he ever officially played for New England or I think the, the Eagles have him at some point. But I, I hope that he does well because it really, it really makes the, the game more exciting. It makes the Jaguars more exciting for the first time in a while. And uh, it's just going to make the game better. You know, it's a guy who's, who's a nice guy, very talented player, and has done a lot of great things for the game. So th that should be really cool. And with that, that will do it for us this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, get out the word on the Francisco Lindor, Jeff Neal, How I Met Your Father cameo. Please help me out with that one with the raccoon, just to get the specifics in there. Uh, thank you so much, and I will see you again next week.